Right, a very brief introduction. I first met Jim Speed 57 years ago. Um, he came to Australia to serve in a couple of years exchange and we, he came to join the ship I was in, Cootamundra, alongside in Sydney. Since then I've known him uh, first as a shipmate, second as a um, friend and for the last 55 years as a brother-in-law. And it's great to see so many of his family come along tonight. He's, his life story is an epic in itself and would be a, a fascinating one to hear. We're just going to hear one extract or one particular focus of that life tonight. And without further ado, I'll invite Jim now to come forward and give us his address on D-Day 1944. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me here. It's uh, really quite something, I think. I regret that all my family's here because it means I will have to tell the truth <laughs> and I can't widen anything, which is a bit unfortunate. Now, before I begin, I'd better make a few points. One, if you haven't noticed it, I am very deaf. So if you say anything to me, I won't hear it. But Jim will be here and he'll be my ears. Secondly... On June the 6th, 1944, D-Day, I was a sub-lieutenant R-N-V-R. I was in the Royal Navy. I was an Englishman. I had just spent five years being involved in a war, remember. <coughs> the whole of England was involved in a war. Nobody got away with it. So we were involved in a completely different atmosphere to what you have here today. It was a very different thing altogether. Finally, I'd like to say that for all my naval service during the war, I never served on a ship. I only went on them as a passenger, and a sufferance in most cases too. But I'll tell you about that as we go along. So let's get down to it. We're going to talk about D-Day. <coughs> but D-Day was the climax really, of a great deal of preparation to leading up to this great thing called an invasion. Now, when you talk about an invasion, you're not talking about taking a few people across the lake in a rowing boat. You're talking about moving a whole of an army, everything, all their tanks, all their personnel. If you really wanted everything from the local laboratory paper to the greatest shell has got to be moved, at the right time, in the right place, all got to go. For instance, in 1940, June 1940, <coughs> after we'd been at war for only a few months, Hitler had occupied the whole of Europe. He'd just walked through France in three weeks. And if you looked at the map from Russia, which he'd made an agreement with, right through Europe, right to Spain, was all German-controlled. On the 12th, I think, of June, a little gentleman from Italy came across and joined up with him, and he now had Italy and North Africa. There was only one thing missing that he wanted. It was that pesky little island called England. He hadn't yet got that. He had to erase the disgrace that had been done to his country in 1918 
when they'd lost the war. And this he had very nearly done. Only 22 miles away, 32 kilometres, was England. He could stand at Dover, or well, he's his side, and the part of Calais, and look across and see the white cliffs. People swam across. That's how far it was. All he'd got to do would drop that little bit of water, and he was on the other side. But when he thought about it, and he had to slow down because he'd been so quick going through France, he hadn't really had time to think about invasion England. When he thought about it, he thought, well, maybe we'd better think a little bit. How do I get them over there, all my troops? We can't take tanks. We can't take guns. We haven't got a port. I'll have to send troops over in open barges, towed by tugs. Yeah, that's all right. That's easy enough. We've got lots of barges, lots of tugs. But the Brits still have that thing called a navy, uh, which didn't worry him very much. And they still have a little air force. He'd been told by his senior bods that their air force was three times bigger than the British air force. So he knew they could wipe it out quite easily. But he didn't think towing tugs across open water with aeroplanes flipping around was a good idea. So he turned around to Goring, his airman, and said, clear the sky. That's all you've got to do. Your air force is so big you can wipe it out. Just clear them off. As soon as you've done that, we'll tow the boats across and we will have conquered this bit of water. But as we know from history, the Battle of Britain, as it was called, took place and they didn't. Our little air force beat their big air force. And one day he had to take the fact, face the fact that he didn't control the whole situation. So he decided to pack it in. Don't waste any more time. We'll starve them out. We'll sink all the ships delivering their goods and I'll whip up there and attack Russia. Which made quite a lot of difference to a lot of people, particularly in England who'd been sitting there waiting and inspecting an invasion. But he moved out. He didn't make it. Before we went, though, he said, one day, unless England gives in, they'll want to fact, try to fight us and beat us, and they will have to do that over here. They will have to come across that stretch of water. And that's what we're talking about. It's not a big stretch of water, as I said. 22, 22 miles at 32 kilometres, you're a good swimmer, do it without any trouble, said he. I nearly did, but not quite. <laughs> so we look at it quite sensibly. Look at England. The boss in charge of England, old Churchill, he thought to himself, one day we're going to beat them. One day we're going to go over. But uh, we better think about it. What I'll do is I'll start planning. This was in 1940 he first put together the small section that became Combined Operations. And he put a gentleman in charge, who I think most people know, his name was Mount Batten, and he was a Vice Admiral. And Vice Admiral Mount Batten took over the job of planning for the invasion of Europe. And he looked at it, he was a sailor, and he thought to himself, the sea... 
How do I get all these gentlemen across to the other side? A whole army. In the end, they took two armies. It's going to take hundreds of ships. Hundreds of ships. And they'll have to be special ships. You can't run a destroyer up on the beach. You can't dive in and attack a town just like that. We're going to have to land them on flat surfaces, on the sand. We will have to have special ships, which we will call landing craft, all varying different sizes. We had over 3,000 of them in the end. That's a lot of landing craft. And he thought to himself, being a sailor, if ships don't really control themselves, you've got to have crews. Where do I get all the crews from? And the crews need officers. Where do I get all the officers from? This is a very important point, I might tell you. <coughs> Where do the officers come from? They can't come from the ordinary officer school because they're only just keeping up with those that were available. What I'll do is I'll build myself my own officer's training establishment. So he said, right, we'll get away when nobody knows where we are. So where do they go? To the highlands of Scotland, right up the top end. They looked across a valley, and there was a little bit of water coming in, and he said, what's that bit of water? And they said, oh, that's Loch Airlotzer. And what's that big house alongside? That's Airlot House. That's it. That became HMS Loch Airlot. Officers Training School. And where do we get people to come there? You look round and he said, all those lovely new recruits coming in, we'll grab them first before they can be corrupt by going to general service. <laughs> and we'll pick the best and we'll send them to this school. So that's what they did. They went to the training establishments, passed out the word. Now, very important point. On the 24th of November 1924, a very stalwart young man, aged 18 and four days, stood in front of the gates of HMS Collingwood, a very large training establishment at Fairham in Hants, the, between Southampton and Portsmouth. And when he walked through those gates, he became ordinary speeman James Henry Speed, me of course. I did the 10-week course. And at the end of that time, I was sent for by the training commander, and he said, I've got my eye on you. I'm sending you to this new base in Scotland. He said other things that weren't so pleasant, but I won't mention those. <laughs> he said, just sit around and uh, wait for a day or two while I put a few more together, and we'll send you up there. And two weeks later, there were 12 of us. And a petty officer came along and said, pack your bag, off you go. So... Bus to Southampton, which was just up the road, train to London, London to Glasgow, Glasgow the Highland Railway, right up the top, through Fort William. There was things beyond Fort William. We turned left, went even further out, and we stopped on the mountainside. And we got out, and they said, this is as far as you go. You see that house over there? That's where you're going to. Oh, that looked all right, nice house. So we picked up our bag, walked over to the house, just as we got to the front door, we turned left and went round the back. And there were the Nizen huts <laughs> with our beds inside. So we started our life in a Nizen hut. A nice corrugated iron, cool Nizen hut, February in Scotland 
I'd never been to Scotland before, and it was so damn cold, it was unbelievable. So, we did four weeks there, and I didn't freeze to death, quite, very nearly. And after four weeks, we did uh, some examinations, and at the end of the examinations, they picked us out, and we mustered in the big drill hall. The captain came in and said, you're now all commissioned officers. But then he said, as long as you're over 18 and 19 and a half, if you're under 19 and a half, you're only a commissioned midshipman. Well, I've got 15 months to go to get there. <laughs> so that was me, my commissioning time. He said, go away, pack your bag, you're on your way. So he went away, packed a bag, and then the call came that myself and six others were required in the office. Down to the office we went, went in and they said, you've been taught, been picked out to stay here to train as navigators. Then, so, we stayed there for a little while, and then we went to a place called Troon, also in Scotland. If any of you play golf, you might know there's a golf course at Troon. Unfortunately, we didn't go to play golf. On the way through, we went to Glasgow, where I was issued with my new blue uniform. I was an officer. At Troon, we went to the navigation school, and we did our five weeks, and I passed out as a navigator. Now, some of you might know a bit about Navy navigation, and there's something not quite right here. At least the captain of the school said so. He called us all in, gave them all their certificates of a competence, except for two of us. And this other young chap, myself, he was my, just my age, had to see him separately. And we went in and he said, how much sea time have you had? And I said, sea time? He said, well, I've only just joined. I haven't had any yet. He said, no, I was afraid of that. Do you really think that you could navigate ships all over the world? Eighteen and a half. What a question to ask. I said, of course. I passed your course, sir. <laughs> well, he unfortunately said, there's a little bit more needed than just passing my course to be a navigator. So we'll find out what we'll do with him. Uh, two days later, I went back again, and he looked a bit more cheerful, and he said, I know exactly what to do with somebody of your age, obviously your ability and your deemed desire to get on, just sign a bit of paper and out you go. So I signed a bit of paper, walked out the door, outside was my mate, and he said, did you sign? I said, yes. He said, what did you sign? I said, I don't know, I didn't read it. He said, well, you've just volunteered, volunteered yourself for Navy Special Hazardous Duty. How marvellous. <laughs> well, let's think about this invasion thing that's been going on. People have been ticking over this invasion for some time. Things have changed a little bit. Firstly, Hitler didn't quite defeat Russia as he hoped, and so he was still held up there. And then somebody dropped a few bombs on a harbour out the back end, and Japan came into the war, and America joined us. That made all the difference in the world, of course, because the idea of Hitler just walking into England with America there was another matter altogether. They agreed very quickly to provide all the necessary bits for this major invasion. They wanted to get in and get on with it. Well, our little man Churchill managed to hold them off for a bit. They thought they'd have a trial and see what it was like to land at a town. So they went into a little place called Dieppe. They ran up on the beach with their landing craft, a lot of nice Canadian gentlemen and English, and they were thoroughly beaten. 
but they learnt a lot. One of the first things they learnt was that chaos that took place needn't have taken place if somebody had been there on the beach to organise it. You want somebody organising it. So we'll produce a beach master in future. And then they turned around and said, the landcraft are all right, but you can't just attack a town. We've got to land nearby and come round to get to the town. So when they started really thinking about this landing, where were they going to go? I mean, they could go across the part of Calais. It was only 22 miles across. But Hitler thought that's just what they were going to do. In fact, he thought that right up until two days after the invasion had taken place. They managed to convince him it was there. That's where we were going to go. But in actual fact, we went somewhere else. We found this little bit of land which I've marked up here. That lovely little bit there. Nice bay. Good hard sand. Nice flat area behind, mainly all bog, but you could put airfields on it if you had to. And was close enough for British aircraft to be over the top. So having decided that's where we were going to go, the other thing they'd always said was, you need a port. You're not going to capture the port, but you've got to have one very close by so that you can take it over quickly to unload all your tanks and stores. But that doesn't have a port. You can't get down to Cairns by sea unless you go down that very small line of water. But the British being the British, I thought this one out. They said, we'll build our own port and take it with us. We'll tow it there. And they did. They built a huge sections of slabs of concrete, bigger than you've ever seen. I've got drawings of them in one of these books. They're absolutely immense. And they towed them out there and they sunk them into line as a breakwater and then they ran their line out and they produced the Mulberry Harbour after we'd been there about three days. I have marked it on this one here. There it is. Mulberry Harbour. It's Mulberry Mold Harbour B. There was a Mulberry Harbour A but I don't want to shame the Americans, so we won't discuss Mulberry Harbour A. <laughs> so, that's where they decided to go. Now, I won't go into all the secrecy that went involved with it, keeping it out of the, the idea of the uh, Germans that that's where we were going to land, <coughs> and not up at the part of Calais, but eventually we got away with it, and we landed nicely on the spot. The Germans brought over one of their nice little generals, he came over, Mr. Rommel. He was a top-line man, and he took over the defence. And Rommel looked at the map, and he said, they're never going to land there, the part of Calais. They'd be idiots. They'll land down here, in Normandy. That's the obvious place. I know, I know there's no town there, but I'm sure they'll find a way around that. And what's more, they'll land either in May or on the 5th, 6th, and 7th of June, which we did. They managed to hold the Americans off. They were, Americans were very, very keen to get going. They wanted to land at about four places at once, the idea being you divide up the German uh, defence and they don't know what's going on. But Montgomery got the job of being in charge of the assault and he said, no, all in one place, that's going to be us. And so that's how it all went. Now we'll go back to the old Jim Speed at this school of his he marched out of the school 
once more across the Clyde, up to the mountains again, to alongside another naval base. And this one was an ex-hotel. It was a very nice hotel, and we were allowed to move inside. There was only one problem. All the men were wearing khaki. And there was a Navy flag flying, it was definitely, except for their hats. They had Navy hats, Navy rank, all the rest was khaki. And one or two of them had funny flashes on their arm. They had the combined operations flash, and they had this funny little flash. I've got one here. There it is. It's got RN Commando written on it. I became a commando. We were told very early we weren't going to be trained as marine commandos and army commandos, as attack personnel, although we would learn and did enough to defend ourselves. Your job was to land well on the time, right on HR, and help the soldiers going ashore. That distance between the ship and the dry land was a very important piece. Rommel, in his statement, said, we have to beat them in the water. If we can stop them getting firmly ashore, we will win. <coughs> so it was important. They'd learned that soldiers don't swim. They don't like the seawater very much, and they get afraid. And if they trip or do anything unusual, which was quite easy coming off a landing craft, then they're in trouble. So we had to go out and take lines out to these landing craft, help them come in, and usually we were being shelled at the same time just to make sure things were going on nicely. And so that's what we were trained for. Now we formed up, we went to a place called Strathpeffer in Scotland. There we met the other three sections of our commando. A naval commando is divided into three sections. Each section has three officers, two petty officers, two leading seamen and 16 men. I have to mention the 16 men because... By the time it got round to Roger Commando, these were volunteers. The volunteer pool had run dry. Well, where do you go if you want to get volunteers when none are volunteering? The chap said, down the road is a prison, a naval prison. There are a lot of men in there who'd love to get out if you just give them the chance. So the next time I stood amongst my 16 men, quite a lot of them were ex-criminals. I'd like to say first, though, they were the greatest bunch you could have possibly ever had. So we formed up, Strathpeffer, our section joined two other sections, and we were now a full commando. We had a lieutenant commander in charge, Joe Darcy. He was unfortunately an old man, I thought. He was 30. He didn't go very well. So we stayed in Strathpeffer a little while. While there, I did a, an ordinary uh, car driving course and got my first driving licence. Very few young men had a driving licence. There were no cars to drive and no petrol to learn to drive with. And we were going to get a vehicle. So I became a driver. I also did other things, underwater diving and all sorts of bits and pieces. Cut it short, we eventually started coming south. Crawling south. Well looked after, stuck in the back of a truck as an officer, on top of the baggage, just like everybody else, and slept your way down. About halfway down to the south of England, we stopped off for a couple of weeks, and there we met another commando. They were going to be the next one, Foxtrot Commando. 
And there, boss, was a very famous young man. He'd been involved in oh, landings for a long time. His name was Gurditz, Lieutenant Commander Gurditz. If you're a Navy man, you might have met him. He was still in the Navy when he retired as a Rear Admiral DSC in Bar. Gurditz. He was a <laughs> he was a very tough young man. <coughs> Yeah, anyway, we won't go on to him. I met him again later on. But we met up with them. They were going to be in the next beach. And we all came on south, right down to the south of Port, to Portsmouth. You couldn't go much further unless you were going to swim. And there we were. A place called Cowplane Woods. We stayed in Cowplane Woods for a while. We did three trial runs, two trial runs, sorry, up the coast on ships. And then we were all ready to go. We had numerous briefings. We never ever got told really where we were going. None of the maps we saw had names on them, which made it a bit difficult. And one day my boss sent for me and said, they made a decision. They're going to send Frogman in before HR to clear the obstacles. I would add in a lot of these books, it says they went in with the first Royal Marines. There were no Royal Marines on my beach and they went in before HR to clear the obstacles so that the early landing craft could get in with less trouble. But then they said, right here, there are obstacles under the water. How does the coxswain of a landing craft know that those obstacles have been cleared? Ah, no problem. We'll send a little party in at the same time as the frogmen. They can land on the beach and put up signs to show where the frogmen are working. <laughs> this is factual, I might tell you. And so, in the long run, that became me. I and an able seaman were detailed off. We were moved out. We joined up with some more young men, another two, who became what were known as the official underwater clearance marking party, and five or six divers. There were more divers coming from other ships, and off it went. We eventually went to the south down hills, from there down to Victoria Barracks in Portsmouth, right on the seafront. Not that we were allowed to do much, but look out the window. This was about the 1st of June. It was pouring with rain, blowing a gale, midsummer. We were due originally to go on board on the 4th of June. But on the 3rd of June, the weather was so bad that Eisenhower, who was in command overall, put it off for a day on the hope that things would change, and they did. We woke up on the morning of the 5th. It was quite a nice morning. We got all our bits together and marched smartly down South Parade. Well, we went down South Parade. 